You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, today we're uh, continuing to look at Matthew chapter 13, which we started uh, last week. As I've said all along in Matthew, we're not looking at the whole book, but the five different discourse passages where Jesus speaks directly at length. And this is the third of five. You could call it the parabolic discourse because in this chapter, it's strictly parables. Um, And you can look at all the the five discourse uh, passages in Matthew as a sort of handbook on discipleship, meaning what it means truly to be a follower of of Jesus Christ. And so last week, uh, Mike spoke to us about the parable of the sower, which was the first of uh, more uh, bizarre agricultural references to come. Uh, As we saw in that first parable, the sower does some strange things with seeds that no farmer would normally do. And Uh, Here we continue with uh, that same line of thinking with the parable of the wheat and what's known as tares commonly, but here we have the word uh, weeds instead, so the wheat and the weeds. Uh, And then following that, we've skipped several verses to go down below where Jesus gives a very straightforward explanation of what uh, this passage means exactly. And the the meaning of the parable is quite plain. Uh, As I was studying it at first, I thought, well, there's not a lot I need to say because Jesus actually explains it quite well when you consider verses 36 uh, through 43 later in the chapter. Um, But as I looked at this more, that plain sense can be deceiving. Um, There's a lot to the parable when you sort of read between the lines of what's going on here exactly. And it also has a few very significant things uh, to say to our society today in the 21st century. So what is the story of the uh, parable of the wheat and the weeds? Well, here's how it goes. A man sows wheat seeds in his field, and at night, while he's asleep, his enemy comes to the field and sows weedy seeds in the field. And if you know anything about gardening, this isn't good. Uh, I garden, and the definition of a weed is a plant out of place. Uh, It's where you don't want it to be, uh, because weeds can choke the plants that you want to grow. That's one of the things that they do. And the natural response when you have weeds or a plant out of place is to pull it up, to allow the, the plant, the desired crop, to continue to grow without being stifled by the weeds. Which is why the the servants of this farmer, the master of the house, uh, come to him and and they ask him about about what's going on. At first they're perplexed. They sort of ask a question like, wait a minute, didn't you sow good seeds and so why are these uh, weeds coming up? Uh, And then they ask him if they'd like him to pull up the weeds. And the man says a perplexing thing not what you would expect. He says, no, let them grow together. Let the good seeds and the weeds continue to grow together. And his reason is, as he explains, there's a a risk. If you go weeding right now, there's a a risk that you'll actually uproot the good wheat. And we don't want that to happen. 
Uh, and his servants probably at this point would naturally think that he's crazy uh, because that doesn't make any sense. As I said, the, the normal thing to do would be to pull up the, the weeds and he gives them this sort of unusual practice. But he reassures them in the end uh, that they will be able to uh, sort out the plants at a later date. And the wheat will be put up in the barn and the weeds will be destroyed in a fire. <clears throat> And later, Jesus, as I said, uh, plainly explains the parable to his disciples. When his disciples come to him and say, can you explain the parable about the weeds to us? And he says, easy. It goes like this. The sower is the son of man, which is himself, and the enemy is the devil. The wheat are the sons of the kingdom of heaven, and the weeds are the sons of the devil who will eventually uh, be banished to hell. There's a quote, a great quote from Verbal Kent in the film, The, the Usual Suspects, uh, which for a long time, you know, when I was younger, uh, put backed in a corner and someone would say, what's your favorite movie? I would give the cliche answer of The Usual Suspects. Uh, I, I probably wouldn't do that nowadays, but it is a really good movie because it has, a, a, I won't give you the spoiler, because it has one of the greatest endings of all time. Uh, and, uh, but anyway, a verbal Kent is this guy who, basically the way the movie goes is he's being interrogated by a police detective and uh, through the interrogation he's telling the story that the film is about. And he has a great quote, a memorable quote during this interrogation where he's talking about the chief villain of the story, Kaiser Soze, and he says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he did not exist. The greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he did not exist. I bring this up because as soon as uh, most of us hear about the devil, about half the room rolls their eyes. If not literally in your heart, about half of you are rolling your eyes, that there's, there's no such person, you know, we mutter. Uh, this is because we live in a, a totally disenchanted society here in the United States, in the West, uh, we're the so-called rational inheritors of the Enlightenment. Um, things like devils and demons and even angels are sort of far-fetched, aren't they, Matt? You know, how, how could we believe in such a thing? It can't be proven, we say. And, and, and here's what I have to say. Look, most of me is with you because my default setting is not to a, a biblical worldview. I was raised in that sort of rationalistic so-called humanism. So my default setting is actually totally with you to roll my eyes when I hear about something like the devil. Um, but uh, I want to push back on that default setting that even I have. Because what if verbal is right, verbal Kent from the usual suspects, that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he did not exist. If there were a devil, and his primary goal is to lead us astray, he might do so by disguising himself. In the parable, the workers are seeking an explanation of the problem of evil. It's a classical question of, of uh, if there's a good God, why could bad things happen? It's a common question for the ages. I mean, even before Jesus, people have been asking this question for millennia. How could a good God exist if he lets bad things happen? And you may have asked your, this question yourself. You might be asking it right now. The workers ask the master, they say, did you not sow good seed 
in your field? How then does it have weeds? Or in other words, we thought your work was only good, so why is there bad mixed up with it? And to this, uh, we're not given a, a philosophical kind of armchair explanation from Jesus. Instead, we're given a simple answer about a source that God has an enemy, and he is a powerful enemy, but thankfully not as powerful as God. Uh, just as the, the white witch in the Chronicles of Narnia and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe was a powerful uh, character for ages, but she was not more powerful than Aslan, the Christ figure, in the end. And the most frustrating thing for us is that God in the midst of evil operates uh, much more patiently than we would like. We want it to be dealt with right away, right now, right here, which leads me to my next point. There are two more quotes from Verbal Kent and the usual suspects that help us to understand uh, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And here's the second quote. When he's being interrogated, he says this. Remember, he's talking about Kaiser Soze, the devil character. He says, how do you shoot the devil in the back? What if you miss? In other words, what if you miss your target and you risk retaliation? Or still yet worse, what if you cause what we call uh, euphemistically collateral damage? What if you aim for the devil and you miss and you cause collateral damage? And this is akin to when the servants come to the master and they ask him, do you want us to go and gather the weeds? But the master says, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. And so their question is fair, of course, uh, but, we're talk but we're talking about people after all, not plants. I mean, this is an allegory in the end, not about plants, but about people. And if this is true, pulling up the weeds would be akin to genocide, no matter who the people are. And the problem with any sort of pogrom or scorched earth approach to world affairs is that it fails, inevitably killing uh, the wheat along with the tares. And there's uh, no good and right earthly way to take care of all the, the bad guys in, in one fell swoop. It just, it, it's never worked. No matter how demonic the person is who's, who's trying to carry it out, or how good the, and benevolent the person is who's trying to carry it out, it just has always failed in the end. It sounds efficient and expedient. You know, there are all these bad people right here. It's clear, let's take care of it. Uh, but it always ends terribly. Did you know that in, the, uh, in Nagasaki, with the atomic bombing, where we dropped the bomb in Nagasaki, that there was actually a sizable thousands minority group in the city of Nagasaki who were Christian, largely Roman Catholic? It's a great atrocity of the world in the past two millennia that Christians have killed other Christians at war, and sometimes not even aware of doing it. And I wonder what we might be at risk of doing these days when we want to take a scorched earth approach to any sort of conflict. It's terrible on, it, on its own when innocent lives are lost, but people don't often realize in such uh, incidences that Christians are also at, at arms with other Christians. Collateral damage, as it were. But we see here that God, instead of using our ways, takes the route of patience 
and forbearance. And he does not uh, create the bad things, but at least for a time, he allows them to coexist. It's only in this one way that the bumper sticker of coexist is kind of sort of right, that God allows the bad weed to coexist with the, the, I mean, the bad weeds to coexist with the good wheat. And this drives the servants and us endlessly crazy because that's not the way we would want it. But here's the thing, it's actually in our best interests because this is the third verbal Kent quote, okay, from, from the usual suspects. He says, a man can convince anyone he's somebody else, but never himself. Verbal Kent says, a man can convince anyone he's somebody else, but never himself. In other words, we can look one way on the outside, but looks can be deceiving. So let's bring it back to the parable. The bad weeds can look like good wheat, but this also means that the good wheat can look like bad weeds. And there's a theological phrase for explaining this. Maybe you've heard this around the Advent before if you've hung around us a little bit. It goes like this. This is Latin, okay? I'm going to bring in this Latin phrase and one Greek word. That's it, okay? You can hang with me. Simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously justified and a sinner. It's an explanation of the Christian life. The Christian is both a sinner and a saint. Simul simultaneously, both good and bad, badness on the inside and also pronounced righteous. Or as Paul explains in Romans in chapter 3, I'm going to take you down the Romans road, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for good, all have turned aside, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And then in chapter 5 he says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then finally, at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, he says, talking about himself, wretched man, and this is really a description of all of us, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Basically describing us as a mixed bag, two-faced, all mixed up, both simultaneously justified and a sinner. This is an explanation of the Christian, the follower of Jesus Christ, that we're simul wheat at tear. <laughs> at the same time, wheat and tear. This is the reason the master told his servants, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Perhaps what you think are weeds are wheat after all. And perhaps what you think are wheat are weeds after all. And if you've ever, ever wondered why you uh, do some of the things that you do and can't do some of the things that you'd want to do or hate some of your thoughts or wish you were a better person, it's because part of you is actually more tear than wheat. And thank God he doesn't allow his servants to go weeding right away, that he has patience and forbearance. Perhaps the most important uh, and powerful word in the parable comes in verse 30. If you want to look at your, uh, if you haven't been following along, just take a look at that in, in your bulletin. In the Matthew passage, verse 30, the first word of that verse is let. 
And remember I said I gave you the Latin phrase. Here's the Greek word. The Greek word here is aphete, which of course as it's translated here means let, but it's more complex than that. More powerfully, it can mean either permit or suffer or even forgive. And there are two other uh, memorable places where Jesus uses this same word in Matthew's gospel. And the first is in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer when he's talking about forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer. It's the same word as let there in verse 30 when he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then do you remember the famous passage in Matthew's gospel where he speaks about suffering the little children? Here it goes again. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his, his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let, or as an older translation say, suffer the little children to come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. I bring this up because all of uh, the parables, in all the parables, they clue us into the paradoxical nature of the way that God works. Every time, it's never the way that we would do things. Remember, we would be like the servants who want to roll up our sleeves and go weeding right away. But God allows the bad to coexist with the good. And the bad exists because he has an enemy. But his forbearance uh, for us is while we were simul, the same time tear and wheat, and thank God for his afete, his letting, his forgiveness, his suffering, his forbearance of us. And so here's my uh, question for you to end this sermon. Whose side are you on? The sowers, that's the son of man, as Jesus clearly explains, or the enemies, that is the devil. And here's the thing, as I said, the parables are always paradoxical in the way that we wouldn't want to think about things. Jesus says, you've only got those two choices. He only gives us those two options. And if you're on the sower's side, are you willing to use his methods? Paul put it this way in Romans, God's kindness his letting, his afete, is what leads us to repentance. So our natural objection uh, here might be to ask, uh, won't this uh, permissive forgiving just lead to, to more problems, to cause people to go on sinning if we, if we uh, have the forbearance, the, the letting, uh, the bad to coexist with the good? And the answer is yes, to a certain extent it might. But it seems to be the only way to get some of us to recognize just who God is. And this is the God who died on a cross saying, Father, forgive, while his enemies were killing him, instead of charging in with his angelic calvary to solve the problem. But this parable tells us that someday he actually will come with his calvary, and then it will be too late. And none of us, if it weren't for God's forbearing afete, his let, would end up in his barn that is in heaven with him. And the most difficult thing for us to understand about the gospel is this, that we were all born tares. We were all born weeds. And God alone has made us wheat by his creative power. 
In other words, we're, we are the, the usual suspects. We're the usual suspects amongst all the wheat. And God has acquitted us of our crimes, although deserving the punishment. And so I say today to us to, to join him in his afete, his forbearance, his patience, his letting, for the sake of the redemption of the world. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.